Good morning, gentlemen, and Happy New Year to you. Um, I told Lon that was really not a very good use of time on January the 19th, but uh, let me take January the 5th to say that uh, the essence of Amen Bible Study is God speaking through His Scriptures to you. And uh, you guys, some of you have been here for years and years. Uh, you're the ones who have sustained Amen Bible Study, and my prayer as I retire from Second Presbyterian Church here in another month, is that amen will just go right on and grow. And that you all will continue to study the Bible together, continue to invite your friends, continue to reach out to this community. Uh, we need as many of these Bible studies as we can have all over the city. And this has been a great one. I've really enjoyed it. I've learned so much about the Bible myself as I've prepared to teach. And I'm, I'm very, very thankful to you who morning after morning, very early on a Thursday morning, devote yourself to get up and come on in here and fellowship with one another and, and listen to a, a Bible lesson. And then so many of you in small groups trying to apply it in these small groups, all of us personally trying to apply it. It's just been a, been a great, great time each Thursday morning for me. Well, today we come to 1 John. Uh, we're in the Catholic epistles. That means the universal epistles or the epistles that are written generally uh, to several churches. And here in 1 John in particular, uh, we think of this as a Catholic or universal epistle because it's not explicitly directed to a given church. You know, often Paul will tell you exactly to whom he's writing. Uh, Peter will describe the region to which he's writing. But only here and in Hebrews among the epistles do we have no indication of who the author is. And it's also not, we're not told exactly who the hearers are. Uh, but it's called 1 John. And the reason is that very early in the church, we're talking about 2nd century and then 3rd century, these earliest centuries with our, the apostolic fathers, they clearly attributed this letter to the apostle John. And then there's all kinds of internal evidence as well as the external evidence of, of these witnesses who claim that John wrote it. But there's internal evidence with uh, stylistic similarities with the gospel of John which once again is acclaimed broadly and historically as being written by the Apostle John. So if you're familiar with the Gospel of John, as we read through the Epistle of John, you're going to see all kinds of parallels, similar types of language and concepts. Even in these first sentences we're going to examine to get today, uh, you'll, you'll see that similarity. Now, as is true with every book in the Bible, the author had an intent had some reason that he was writing this epistle or this gospel or this apocalyptic literature. Uh, certainly, uh, if someone has the gift of writing, and some of you have it, <coughs> you know that sometimes you'll just go to your computer and you start writing because you love to write. And certainly, our authors of Scripture are very gifted writers. But in the case of the Bible, they're, they're not just writing out of a spiritual exercise like we would write in our journal. They actually have an intent. There's something they're addressing, some real people in a real circumstance that they're addressing. Now, sometimes it's difficult for us to figure out what the purpose is, what was in the mind of the author. Sometimes it's very obscure to us, but sometimes it's very obvious to us. For example, 1 Corinthians, it's very obvious some of the issues that Paul is responding to in the letter that's come to him, the report that's come to him, and we can see from the very content, the way he interacts with them, uh, what the problems must have been in Corinth. 
Uh, 1 John is not quite that easy, but you do have a clear statement at the end of 1 John. Why don't you turn to the end of 1 John and look with me. And John tells us why he writes it. There are some other subordinate purposes that he has that we'll have to discern by inference. But here explicitly he tells us the main purpose. He says in verse 13 of chapter 5, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So there's the reason. Now, first, you know, for example, in the gospel, in John chapter 20, he also tells us why he wrote the gospel, that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in His name. So John has a habit of telling us at the end of his writings the main purpose for which he wrote it. But then when you get beyond that, sometimes the subordinate purposes are not that easy to discern, but we think you can discern them. John, throughout his epistle, is writing what some scholars have called the tests of life. How do you know that you're a Christian? And the purpose is not to convince you you're not a Christian. The purpose of giving you these tests is to show you and to assure you that you are a Christian. This is written to those who believe that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is one of the clear ways in which we derive our assurance of salvation, which is very precious to us. We talk about our assurance a lot because your assurance is like confidence in the business realm. A salesman has to be confident. Well, a Christian has to be confident. The salesman has secular human means by which he develops his confidence. The Christian has supernatural means and has to know how to use those means in order to develop his assurance. And as our assurance goes up, our willingness to take risks in ministry and in relationships goes up. So our effectiveness as a bold servant of Christ goes up as our assurance goes up. So our assurance is precious to us. So we're very thankful to have a book like this, a letter like this. Now, John will give several ways in which you can know that you're a believer. But let me just categorize them in three categories. First of all, there's a doctrinal way. In other words, there are core doctrines. You basically get it in the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. And if you are a believer, you believe those things. And normally, not always, but normally you wouldn't believe them unless you were converted. But you have to add to that the other two tests. There is an ethical test. Are you walking in the light? Are you acknowledging that you're a sinner? Are you walking in the light by repentance? If someone says, I don't think I have anything to to ask forgiveness for, clearly not converted. Uh, So uh, John says that if we say we have no sin, we, we lie and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's 1 John 1, 8, 9. So if there's an ethical test. Are you walking ethically according to the Word of God? That doesn't mean perfectly. If it does, it means I'm, I'm not a Christian. Uh, so we don't walk perfectly, but we walk repentantly so we can be corrected and we, we get off the path and we get back on the path through repentance. And we do that all day long, every day. 24-7, 366 days out of the leap year, okay? So there's an ethical life that displays a certain ethical trajectory so that generally speaking, those who know you well can predict how you're going to perform on something because you're committed. There's a trajectory there committed to a framework of the way that you live your life. 
And what John is saying, look, if that has happened to you, now it's even more certain you become a Christian because this ethical framework, including the nuances, uh, are received by God's people. It's one way in which you know that they've genuinely been converted. But then there's the third test, and you have to add that test to it. So you have all three of these. You have a doctrinal or theological quiz. You, You have a test on your ethical life and then your social life. And John says that if you love one another, then you are the people of God. And you pick that up especially in chapter 4, don't you, that long section there, where he shows us that the uh, essence of the Christian experience is an experience of love. And that if we say that we love God and do not love our brothers, we're lying. So the love that we have for God is revealed in the way that we love one another. And so here is the chief mark of all the tests. And, of course, John records Jesus speaking about it in John's gospel. So he emphasizes it in the gospel. He emphasizes it here that if we are believers, there's going to be a change of our doctrine, our theology, the things we believe. There's going to be a conformity ethically to the standards of the Scriptures. And there's going to be a genuine affection for the brothers. Once again, not perfect. Doesn't mean you don't get mad. Doesn't mean you don't sin against one another. Doesn't mean you don't break all the commandments in one sense at one time or another with each other. But what it means is the real believer will repent toward this standard of relational affection, love, and devotion. Those three tests are in John's gospel. He says, I've written these things to you so that you who believe can know that you have everlasting life. You've got these three things in your life. Let me tell you, there's only one way you got them. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit regenerating you. You weren't born like this. This is a miracle that anyone would be this way. So the outcome of Christian self-examination is not to beat yourself up and to realize how bad you really are. I mean, that's a sub-point. The main point is that God is gracious to you and you know that He loves you. And now you're ready to go out there and beat snakes. So John is writing to strengthen the church. Now, behind all this, let's think for a moment where John was when he wrote this. We know from the book of Revelation that he wrote to seven churches on the coast of Turkey, today's Turkey, Ephesus being right in the middle of all this and being the major site. And John wrote from the Isle of Patmos in the Aegean looking back at these seven cities. So most scholars suspect that John is writing to, primarily to the Ephesians, but with the intent for this letter to be distributed because the problem is distributed. I'm telling you, in my pastoral experience, the problem is distributed. Men doubt at times the love of God for them. Men down deep inside in ways they won't even admit will often doubt whether they're included. And they'll wonder about it. And they'll, be, they'll have a lack of confidence, a lack of assurance, even though they don't talk about it very much. And so the, the problem is rampant. But there was another problem that was rampant. And it was a problem of heresy. Uh, that's at least what scholars are suspecting here. There was a very famous heretic called Serenthus. And Serenthus operated in the area of Ephesus. And most scholars believe that John is directly opposing the heresies of Serenthus. Here's what Serenthus said. And I'm going to go in order of theology, 
and ethics and, and relationships. Here's what Serenthus said about all those things. Number one in theology, Serenthus the heretic was saying that Jesus Christ was really not the deity incarnate. That Jesus was a righteous man and at his baptism, the mystical Christ came upon him and he became Jesus Christ at his baptism and before his death, his gruesome death on the cross, which no God would ever have to endure, God the Christ left him. And so he only appeared to be God in the flesh. And I put, in a, word, put a word down here for you under Roman numeral number one, the word docetism, which comes from the Greek word dakeo, which means to appear. And docetism, which Serenthus taught, was the idea that Jesus only appeared to be God incarnate. It wasn't to deceive us, to be fair to Serenthus. It was to benefit us, but it was what God did to benefit us. He only made it appear. Now, you know from previous things we've said here that if God was not in Jesus, if, if Jesus was not the Son of God, fully deity, then His atonement did not have value for all of us. You can only atone for either your own sins or if you're perfect, you could atone for one other human being's sins as a substitutionary atonement. One person for one sinner. But if he's the son of God, then his atonement has infinite value and can be applied to many sinners. So this is no light doctrinal matter. Heaven and hell, life and death are hinging on this doctrine. And Serenthus was wrong. And you'll see that John addresses this problem clearly here. He says, those who believe that Jesus came in the flesh, that the Son of God came in the flesh, they're the believers. So he's saying Serenthus is not a believer. There's some doctrinal differences that we have in our denominations where somebody has got to be wrong, right? On this issue of baptism, somebody's wrong. Maybe both of you are wrong, but both of you couldn't be right. Somebody's wrong. But heaven and hell don't hang in the balance. There's some things that are called heresies where heaven and hell hang in the balance. This is one of them. John is exercised about it. And he's saying, you men have to know the difference. And it's part of your obligation as being a Bible student is to figure out what is the apostles' doctrine. What is the, the creed that binds us all together? What are the quintessential elements of faith as a Christian? And you have to know that for yourself and for your children, for your grandchildren, and for all your friends. You've got to know that. John knew it. And he's reminding these Ephesians and other uh, folks in Asia Minor, apparently, uh, of the necessity for orthodox belief. Now, Serenthus further, when he gets into the ethical life, uh, this docetism is a form of Gnosticism, which is that we're saved by enlightenment. Uh, Gnost, you know, uh, Gnostic comes from the word to know, uh, G-N-O, Gnostic, G-N-O-S-T-I-C, Gnosticism means to be saved by enlightenment, by knowing something. And the Gnostics believed that we were saved by pure enlightenment and that we, it was ourselves who ascended up into the eons to understand and to know something about God. Uh, but God Himself 
would never come to this filthy planet and certainly would not do something as outrageous as taking on broken human flesh to himself. So Gnostics found that outrageously offensive. And the Docetics were akin to them. Now, the Gnostics didn't really develop in full form until the next century. But you can see that, like all heresies, they grow with time. If you take the things that you deal with now in the workplace, doctrinal heresies all over the place, and in the newspaper, and on CNN, everywhere you look, heresies, heresies, heresies. They've been going on for a long time. And if you're about 70, 80 years old, you can go back to the 40s and 50s, and you can see how this has developed right on through. Same thing in the first century. So this is pre-Gnostic heresies. But ethically, back to my point, Serenthus is saying that since God would not come into the flesh, flesh does not have that kind of value. What's important is your spirit, your mind, that which is going to have eternal or immortality. Therefore, we don't worry about the flesh. We don't concern ourselves with it. Hey, look, an adulterous fair over here or getting drunk over here or whatever, you know, try to live an ethical life, but don't get yourself all hung up about it because it's all passing away. That was a Serinthian view. You'll see here John doesn't buy that for a minute. And neither should we be buying the, her- the ethical heresies that are being foisted upon our society and upon the church. And your folks are trying to convince you that this old-fashioned Victorian sexual morality that you seem to be obsessed about is really not of any interest to God or anybody who's a thinking person, who's really enlightened. And the one who reads 1 John, the one who is reading apostolic ethics, says, no way, Jose, this is vitally important. We give not only our souls, but our bodies to the Lord. And they are given over to Him for His use. And what He directs us to do with our bodies is divine behavior for us. And we're people under commission, under orders. And John is just reminding them, let me tell you what it means for you to be converted. You now walk in the light. And you confess your sins according to biblical definition of sin. That's what it means to be a Christian. There's an ethical injunction. And if you don't buy that, you probably have not been converted. If you do then just realize that probably happened only by the power of regeneration. Now, what did Serenthus believe about fellowship, about relationships? Similarly, they were come and go, easy come, easy go. There was no real long-term devotion to a community. You didn't have to be a member of a church to be religious for heaven's sakes. You could go walk in the garden or go to the pagan temples or just go out and meditate. And frankly, you'd do better religiously if you were on your own just meditating and trying to be enlightened like Buddha. And so it really doesn't have anything to do with relationships. And John says that's impossible. Would you please look at the life of the Lord Jesus Christ? Talk about relationships. He loved you so much, He laid down His life for you, and He called you to do the same for one another. So the Christian faith, John is saying throughout his epistles, it very much involves relationships. And we're going to dig in and see what he means by that. So our time in 1 John is going to be well spent because... Actually, the heresies of Serenthus are not so far off from the heresies you're facing today. There's a doctrinal challenge, there's an ethical challenge, and there's a relational challenge, social challenge for every Christian man, for every man in general. And John's going to show us the way. 
for, for us to know that we're walking with the Lord Jesus Christ. What will that look like? Now let's look at the first four verses. And we're going to see a most interesting way in which John begins his, his epistle. If the heresy is that flesh doesn't matter, <laughs> John goes right in the face of that. And he says, let me tell you how I know. I know through fleshly experiences. So he, he's going right into the teeth of the Serinthian and Docetic heresies by the way that he describes the way in which all of us have become Christians. It's through testimony and through witness. Take a look at it with me, would you? 1 John chapter 1, 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Amen. Now, before we look at the details on your outline, let's just get the outline of this, these basic four sentences. Look at verse 1. I mean, it's an interesting construction. You have four relative clauses followed by the, the phrase concerning the word of life. So he has four things to say in relative clauses. That which was from the beginning, that which we've heard, that which we've seen with our eyes, that which we looked upon and have touched with our hands. So you have four relative clauses. And then... In verse 2, what you get is a parenthetical sentence. <laughs> He's mentioned the word of life, and he takes a parenthesis here in verse 2, and he says, let, let me talk about that life just a minute. Uh, because, and in this parenthetical sentence, he's going to show you how he saw something which was from the beginning. If it's from the beginning, it's preexistent. If it's preexistent, it's God. So how did he see the invisible God? How did he touch that which was from the beginning? Because, you know, Genesis 1, in the beginning, God. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word. Here John goes again. That which was from the beginning, the preexistent. And then he says, that which we saw and heard and touched, held with our hands. How did that happen? This parenthetical sentence explains that to you. He said, the life was made manifest. That is, I didn't do it. Someone else did it, made it manifest or demonstrable to me so that it was evident to me. I could see and I could hear and I could touch. Someone did that. It was made manifest. And we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. And then verse 3, that which we have seen and heard. Now, what he's doing there, he's just picking up the relative clause again because he knows he gave you a long parenthetical sentence, and so you've forgotten what he said in verse 1. 
So as he comes to verse 3, he's kind of, you know how you do that? You'll, I do it, don't I? Uh, yeah. So I go off over here, and, and then I say, oh, we got to get back here. And then I kind of repeat what I said over here for a minute to get you back on track. That's what he's doing in verse 3. He, he's saying, that which we have seen and heard, and now comes the main verb. We proclaim. There's the main verb. He's saying that we, we're proclaiming something to you, but he starts off by telling you what it is he's proclaiming. It's something that was from the beginning, that he saw, that he heard, that he touched. And that's what he's proclaiming to you. Then as you move on, you see what this proclamation accomplishes. And there are two major things here. And we're, all we're doing now is just sort of outlining the sentence in terms of its content. He says, we proclaimed also to you so that, aha, so that, great, now we know purpose statement. So what was the purpose of the proclamation? And keep reading it. He says, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. So he's saying, you know, the Greek word is koinonia, so that you can have partnership or fellowship with us. And let me just let you in on something. Let me tell you who our partner is. <laughs> if you become a law partner here with me, let me tell you who my part, who the senior partner is. <laughs> You're going to be really happy about this. He's unbelievable. God himself. So you become my partner, and if you become partners with us, you're going to become a partner with the living God. It's an amazing thing. But he's not through there. Look, the, the, the purpose clause continues. He says, and we are writing these things so that, so that, so that our joy may be complete. Now, uh, there's textual debate about whether the word is our or the word is your. I think the ESV made the right decision. John Stott make, thinks the ESV made the right decision before he died, uh, that it's our. And John is saying, just like Paul says on occasion, make our joy complete. And John is saying, we're proclaiming this to you uh, so that you can have koinonia, so that our kara, our joy, will be complete as you find your joy. So joy, you see, is where this is all leading. And it's so unfortunate that so many non-Christians think that we get together and study the Bible so that we can be more miserable today than we were yesterday. And the reason they think that is because that's actually what's happening in a lot of places. You go to church, you study the Bible, and you feel more miserable today than you did yesterday. And John is reminding us of something very important. We're doing this Bible study we're listening to the apostolic proclamation to receive our joy. This is where we get our, our jollies. It's in this stuff, this mystery. And we'll see why in just a moment. Now there's the general outline then you can see. Starts off with the relative clauses. Eventually, after explaining how he had this experience by manifestation, then he takes you back and says, what we're doing is proclaiming this to you. And here's why. For fellowship and for joy. Now let's get back to Roman number number one. So as we look at verse 1, these four relative clauses, it seems to me that we can at least draw this conclusion, that our faith is based on reliable witnesses. Our faith is based on reliable witnesses. Now I've mentioned some verses here, uh, certainly John 19.35 where Thomas says, I'm not going to believe until I put my hand into the scars. And Jesus comes to him. 
It says, Thomas, right here. Right here, Thomas. Check my feet. See the scars. Real, fleshly, historical scars. And Thomas, the skeptic, touches them. And even Thomas, the analytic skeptic, is completely convinced and he confesses, my Lord and my God. And that's the title he gives Jesus. My Lord and my God. It is true. Christianity is a religion of faith that is based on history, based on truth, based on reality, including geology and science and reason and every other thing God has given us to discern truth. Christianity is based on things that really happened in history. And we take those things seriously. So it's not right for me to say, well, I don't know if all this really happened. I just accept it by faith. That's a contradiction in terms. Faith includes being convinced of the evidence. Now, the evidence itself won't get you saved. Faith is a mystery that is a God-given gift that enables you to rest in that evidence and rest in the truth in a way that's beyond just rational discernment, granted. But faith includes being convinced by the evidence. This is the reason that Peter says you should be prepared to give an answer for the hope that is in you. So you be prepared uh, to give an answer. You become aware of the evidence. You take a look at it. You get yourself convinced. Christians are never afraid of science. They're never afraid of history or philosophy. You can ask us all the philosophical questions. You can challenge all of our historical citations. And we want you to because we're quite convinced that as you examine this, you're going to be convinced too if you're open to the truth. So we've always invited full examination from the outside because our faith rests on real, discernible facts. And that's what is being said here. John says to us, look, what we're proclaiming to you was from the beginning, it is truly God, and I think he's making a reference clearly here to Jesus Christ, the incarnate God, the same reference he makes in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He's talking about that from the beginning. And he's saying we had a personal sensory experience with Him. Now, I understand that human senses have to be held a little bit skeptically. You know, those of you who are pilots, you know, you can be flying a plane upside down. You don't even know it if you're in a cloud bank unless you look at your instruments. And you think you're, you're just flying like this and you're really flying like this and you wouldn't know unless you look at your instruments. I grant that sensory perception can be a tricky thing. But gentlemen, the Christian faith includes sensory perceptions and experience. It does. And includes facts. And you'll see that our faith is reasonably resting upon the testimony of certain witnesses. And this is exactly what John is presenting to us. He's saying, I'm an apostle, I'm preaching to you, and I'm preaching you, to you about something I know. And he says, here's how I know it. Look at verse 1. I heard it with my own ears. 
So you can tell me I'm crazy. You can tell me I need to see an audiologist. You can tell me that what I heard is not what somebody else heard. But don't tell me I didn't hear it. I heard it. Now the question is, if you're in a court of law, which you lawyers know, you can have someone make a statement like that, that I saw this, I heard that, but you cross-examine the witness. And even their character is important. And there are character witnesses that come into court to verify whether someone is reliable, telling the truth. So you have to discern if this person is reliable. And here's what I'm going to say to you. I mean, you've got a choice. You can trust Carl Sagan. Uh, you, you can trust uh, all, all these folks who are giving to you non-Christian things, or you can trust Peter and James and John and the Apostle Paul and Thomas, these men who at the cost, not the risk, but the cost of their lives, they went around the world proclaiming, independent of one another, they went around the world proclaiming a crucified and resurrected and ascended Jesus Christ and a returning Jesus Christ. They all gave their lives for it. And they lived lives that were uh, beyond any sort of doubt. They, they lived lives that were commendable, that adorned the gospel. They had character. And there's nobody in history that can reasonably impugn their character. These are truth-telling people. And I got 12 of them. And I'm going to stand with their testimony. Now, my faith enables me to believe beyond just reasonably resting on that testimony. God has given us a supernatural gift to embrace reality that is more powerful than like a lawyer would be or a judge would be in a courtroom of just discerning who's telling the truth. But I'm telling you, I, I'm, I'm absolutely convinced these guys were telling the truth. And I believe in a resurrected Jesus because I believe what they said. They saw him. And they heard him. And they touched him. Now notice uh, the word here. You have the word seen four or five times in this text. But there's a word for seeing that is a little different um, in verse 1 when he says, which we looked upon. He uses the word see with our eyes, but then he says the word looked upon. And that's a different word for seeing, which normally suggests that the person grasps and comprehends something. So in other words, I beheld it. I, I grasped it. I understood it. I saw it and I understood what I saw. And that's what he's saying. And it's also, for those of you who know a little Greek, <coughs> it's in the aorist tense, which means this is something that happened in history, and I saw the event, and the event was, presumably, the resurrected body of Jesus Christ. I saw it. I had a moment when I grasped it with my own hands. So I beheld it, I comprehended it, I grasped it. I'm telling you, it was a resurrected body. That's what John says. So Serenthus is a nutcase. He's made up his own religion. He had pre-existing philosophical commitments, and he tried to make the Christian faith fit his pre-existing philosophical commitments. He really wasn't listening to what the apostles are saying. That's what John is saying. John says, I'm telling you folks, now you listen to me. I saw him. I heard him. I grasped him with my own hands. Now, folks, I don't know about you, but that thrills my heart. I've based my faith humanly and rationally on human testimony of credible people like the lovely Apostle John. And I'll stand him up against anybody else over the past 2,000 years who claims that something else is the truth. So here we have this amazing testimony 
And then he says it's concerning the word of life. Now, some scholars say the word of life refers simply to the gospel. Some say it, it refers specifically to Christ. I tend toward the latter, but I sympathize with the former. I think it's both. The word of life can be used as a description of the gospel in general. But, of course, Jesus was the incarnate word, and John uses the word word that way a lot. And the word is logos here. So you take your pick. But he's speaking about eternal things or about the eternal one. And he says, this that I touched and beheld, and this is the basis of our faith. It's based on testimony of reliable witnesses. He says, this concerns the word of life, eternal life for you. And that's the reason it's so important. Now, the, look at Roman numeral number 2, which is verses 2 and 3a, and we see here that the reliable witnesses communicate what God revealed. He says, the life, you, you want to know how I became a witness of this? Because the life was made manifest. God did it. Some people think that God is completely unknowable. And anyone who claims to know Him has to be arrogant. God is incomprehensible. Well, of course, He is incomprehensible, but He's not unknowable. And here's how I know. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. God incarnated Himself in the person of His own Son precisely because He wanted to be known. You don't go knowing someone who is a president or a prime minister unless, you, unless you're invited into his presence. And you certainly don't know the deity unless he invites you to know him. It's his choice as to whether you're going to have a relationship. It's his choice as to whether you're going to really get to know him. He has to disclose himself. He's greater than you are. <coughs> so those who are our superiors, they make the decision about how personal our relationship is going to be. If you have a, I mean, I worked for a corporation for a while, and I'm a little, you know, lowly entry level sales and marketing person, you know, with thousands and thousands of employees. Am I going to be friends with the CEO? <laughs> That's a joke. Now, the only way I could possibly be friends with him is if he wanted to be friends with me, a lowly 22 year old who's starting off entry level in the steel business. And in my case, he, he didn't have that interest. And so, uh, <clears throat> so we, didn't, we didn't become buddies. Uh, now, I know his name. He never knew mine. How much more so with God? How, what, what possibility do I have of having a, a friendship with God? <laughs> it's outrageous to think of such a thing. Unless he, by miracle upon miracle, sees Waldo out there somewhere. says, I want to know you. And here I am. And here's how you can get to know me. Come on in. Really? Yeah. And what John is saying is, look, this is not because I was enlightened according to philosophical enlightenment. It's not because I climbed the stairs of knowledge and finally got so high that I understand something about God. No, no, no. Let me tell you how I acquired this knowledge. He came down to me. He manifested His great self to me. And what I'm telling you is He did it for you. He made Himself manifest to human beings. And that's what the gospel is. That He's made Himself known. The King has revealed Himself. And He also says, come be reconciled to me and be my friend. 
John was in amazement at this, but he's probably even more amazed that people like Serenthus would undermine that gospel. Wickedness is so wicked. It, it'll take a doctrinal route. You don't even know what's happening to you. You think it's some sort of innocent doctrinal aberration. And what it's actually doing is cutting the cords between you and God. And that's what spiritual leadership is about, among other things, is being able to discern these things. And from the very first moment that camel tries to get its nose in your tent, you know there's a camel on the other side of that nose. And wise men know that. And naive men think, oh, it's just a nose, it won't hurt us. John can see it, and he knows how destructive it is. And he says, look, we're proclaiming something to you that was made manifest to us. Now notice the two key words about his role. He says that we testify. Uh, in verse 2, he says, The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify. That's the word for witness. It's the same word where we get the word martyr. A martyr is a witness. What is a witness? A witness is a person who experiences something, a person who hears something or sees something. If you're a lawyer and you've got a case in court, you want witnesses who saw something or heard something important to the case. And John says, I'm a witness. I have an experience. And so the apostles all experienced something. They saw the resurrected Jesus Christ, every single one of them. That's the reason that Paul makes much of his appearance, his sighting of the Lord Jesus Christ in his glory on the road to Damascus. He says, I'm Johnny come lately. The other apostles saw him before his ascension, but I saw him after his ascension. I had an eyewitness experience, of course it blinded me because he was in post-ascension glory, so I got blinded out of it uh, for a moment. But uh, I saw him and I heard his voice. So he was a personal witness of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Those are your apostles. And that's one thing that makes an apostle, is an eyewitness of Jesus Christ. He's a witness. Now let's just stop for a moment and think about this word witness. We're witnesses too. Not eyewitnesses. We're not audio witnesses to the personal Christ. But we are witnesses of Christ in us. And we're witnesses of the gospel. We become witnesses when we hear the gospel and believe it and experience the love of Jesus Christ in our hearts. Now, once again, it doesn't make us apostles that we're witnesses. We're witnesses at a different level. But just as much witnesses, and as a matter of fact, it actually is a greater witness than they experience because our witness is inside us. God the Spirit living in us, testifying to us in our hearts. God Himself, that we're the children of God. What an amazing thing. So in one sense, we know Jesus better than Peter did, at least before Pentecost. So we're witnesses too. We've experienced something. Now that qualifies us for something else. So we're qualified to be a witness because we have an experience of Jesus Christ. Because we're witnesses, now we're qualified to be evangelists. See what he says here. He says, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim. There's the main verb. main verb is we're evangelizing you, proclaiming something to you. So the Apostle John is saying that we have faithfully taken our experience and we have authority because we have experience. And you have authority because you have an experience. 
you can say, I have experienced this. You may not believe me, but I have. So you have authority. Now, he also has authority because he's commissioned to be an evangelist. Now, guess what? You've been commissioned too. When Jesus stood before not just the 11, but the 500, he says, go therefore into all nations and make disciples. And so you can go anywhere in the world and you have a commission. If you go anywhere in the world, all you have to do is say, are you part of the world? Well, if you're part of the world, I, I have a commission right here to be, to be here. I actually know a Presbyterian minister, uh, missionary who tried that in the Middle East about 100 years ago. His visa was denied. And he said, are you part of the world? And the customs agent said, uh, yes. He said, well, right here it says I'm supposed to be here, go into all the world. He got in. And later on that week, that same agent found him in a place getting tea, and they sat down, and guess what they talked about? Are you part of the world? Are they part of the world? Then we go, and we actually have a commission. So we have the authority of witness, and we have the authority of commission. Now use it. John used it, and it cost him. He's the only one who didn't pay his life for his witness. The other apostles all died for their witness. John only got exiled in loneliness on the Isle of Patmos in old age and died there. But he paid the price because he was witness and he was commissioned to be a proclaimer, and he did it. So reliable witnesses communicate what God revealed. Let us be reliable witnesses. Now, Roman numeral number 3, look at verses 3b and c with me. And now we get to the purpose of this in our last 10 minutes here. Roman numeral 3, what was communicated to us gives us fellowship. So what we receive in the gospel unites us as members of a new society and a new humanity. Please don't miss this. If you are united to Jesus Christ by faith, you are de facto united to His church. See how John puts it. He says, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And that, of course, means fellowship with other Christians. We're not just friends in general. We are brothers and sisters in a new family. And what we need to take hold of here is that Christian conversion always involves a commitment to God's people in His church. If you think you've evangelized somebody in terms of leading them to Christ, and they haven't joined an evangelical church, you have another thought coming. They don't consider anybody successfully led to Christ or evangelized until they join a Bible-believing church. John says it right here. I'm proclaiming this to you so that you have fellowship with us. Koinonia, active participation in relationships. You cannot separate the life of faith from the life of love in the church. And John attacks that probably above all things in this letter. That if you say you've got a real cozy relationship with God and you don't have a cozy relationship with His people, you're, you're deceived. You're at least self-deceived. And, and, and maybe worse. So you're deceived uh, if you think that can happen. And when you're working with someone 
uh, in evangelism. I suggest to you that when you're explaining the gospel to them, you explain that this inescapably leads to their publicly professing their faith. If they've not been baptized, they get baptized, and they join this church and become an active member of the family. That's part of your gospel. It's part of John's gospel. So he is saying, we're, we're evangelizing you so that you have fellowship with us. We're not evangelizing you so that you can be some lone ranger out there, so that you can be some coal trying to survive and keep the ember going all by yourself. No, the ember is only going to continue glowing if it's with the other embers. So you see, you see the connection between proclaiming Christ, receiving Christ, and immediately gaining the purpose of it, which is to enter into this fellowship. Now he goes on to say, the fellowship is not just with us guys, us apostles, it's with God. Look at, look at verse 3c. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Wow! So when you join, truly join, the believing church of Jesus Christ, you, you've done more than you probably realized when you joined the church. I certainly didn't realize this when I joined the church. It happened, I just didn't realize it. I became a partner, a fellow, a friend with the Trinity. <laughs> this is an amazing thing. He is, I, I'm in union with the Trinity. Look at Jesus' high priestly prayer and how he prays. Father, that they may be one as we are one. And they enter into our oneness. They become one with us. Jesus is talking to the Father like that about these bonehead disciples that they're going to be in, they're going to be with the elite. Gentlemen, do you realize what it means to receive Jesus Christ in the gospel? You become not just fellows with one another, you become fellows with God. This is what the gospel produces. This is the miraculous, stupendous outcome of some simple person like ourselves receiving Jesus Christ through the gospel, through your witness. Now let's conclude with this. He says, doesn't it make sense to you now that this gospel is leading to an absolute explosion of joy? I mean, you may be an Eeyore in this life, but I'm sorry. When you get glorified, you're not going to survive in your eorness. It just can't happen. You may be a cynic or a skeptic by nature, but that's going to get blown away when you behold with your own eyes and you hear with your own ears and you handle and grasp with your own hands what God has done in this salvation. You're going to become an explosion of joy yourself. See what he says in verse 4. And we are writing these things. So that our joy may be complete. He's saying, you know how my joy is complete in this broken down world? Is that your joy becomes complete by believing the message. And that you enjoy the same joy I have. By receiving Jesus Christ and knowing what your future is going to be like. So that you can live, not risk averse, but you can live with boldness. And you can proclaim the kingdom and go everywhere in the world. And you can give your life away because you know at the very end, you're going to see Him yourself. You'll be the witness, and you'll be proclaiming praises for the rest of your life. And it brings me joy, he says, when I see that you have the same joy. This is how we make our joy complete, is when we share the means of that joy with other people, and they begin to share the joy, and you can, you can feel it in evangelism, can't you? I don't know how many of you have 
had the privilege of leading someone to Christ. But you, you see their eyes begin to open. You can feel their hearts begin to melt. You can see their minds enlarging. You can, you can just see it happening right in front of you, and you see the, the joy falling upon them. And it makes your joy complete. In this life, there are few privileges that are rarer and greater than that one of leading someone to faith in Jesus Christ. So John is saying, would you believe this? Would you please believe this for your joy? Because when you have joy, that makes the apostles joyful, and it makes you joyful. And I suggest that you think about how you're deriving your joy even today. Is it through bringing the joy of the gospel to other people? That's how you ultimately make the joy that Jesus has given you complete. And then, of course, at the last day, we'll find our joy ultimately complete there. As David said in Psalm 16, verse 11, In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let us pray. Father, we confess that we, too, live in an age with momentous challenges to the doctrine and the ethics and the relationships of the gospel. And we confess even more deeply and earnestly our being allured, tempted, and sometimes falling for these foolish ideas and practices. And we pray that we may hear the thundering good news again from the apostle of love himself, John, who teaches us to stay on the straight and the narrow and the joyful path to Zion. Help us today to experience anew the freshness and power of the gospel and in our joy that overflows to be not only witnesses but proclaimers to those around us that our joy in you may be complete, making our prayer in the name of Jesus Christ, our joyful Savior. Amen. Bless you guys.